phase is locked and ready to fire, sir. Illogical. Hello and welcome back to Federation Radio with me, your host Floyd, once again. So today we're going over episode 7 of season 2, Cat's Paw, which is exactly what I thought it was when I looked at the name. It's this weird, weird episode where we're talking about sort of inter... inter-universal? They're almost interdimensional. Like, they're, they're just aliens that we basically can't understand. They're aliens that seem to use a lot of illusion. Their real form is these tiny little, like... They almost look like insect bug-looking things, but they use illusion and magic to make us think that they're, like, human-sized and, at times, even giant beasts. They're, it's a really cool episode going over a very interesting kind of alien and probably the hardest one to write of all is a truly alien alien because you know most like star trek races they're just humans humanoid or they have some form of recognizable society they're on a similar level to us it's usually tech that makes the difference or a certain ability these ones they're not from our dimension they have powers that make our you know basically they hide their powers behind looking like witches and wizards trying to make themselves look like they're magic and their power is almost indistinguishable from it like at one point they even say possibly divinely like power so these beings however have never had emotion which is i guess stopping them from having ambition and like doing bad things and throughout this episode we see why but i like the concept just in general of an alien that is truly alien this is not just another society this is something completely different like it doesn't even have emotions or thoughts or drives like imagine a society like that it'd be very different if they even have a society because they're just meant to be these weird alien things like star trek sometimes tackles these most of the time they're just like sci-fi typical alien stuff but these types of aliens are always interesting because they're just different and I enjoy that, because it's hard to really create an alien like this. You can't really copy them from any sci-fi, because even those ones are usually quite sort of dated. Even this one is kind of an era piece. The whole way it's done, very 60s, like, you probably couldn't do that today. You could do similar aliens, but it would have to be different. Today it would probably manifest as a more technological-looking thing, rather than a magic thing, although they might do it, I don't know. I don't know how they'd do this sort of story in a modern track. I don't think they've tried to tackle the whole truly alien aliens yet but anyway so this episode starts with a it's kind of weird actually you've got kirk being really stressed about his people being down on the planet apparently sulu and scotty who you know haven't checked in now i'm gonna i'll get into it more later but like oh my god this episode really actually annoyed me at how many of the command staff were all sent to the planet at once and basically alone like this bit's not so bad like sulu and scotty all right your chief engineer and your pilot a bit of a weird choice to be your ground team but you don't know they probably have secondary skills i wouldn't put it past someone like sulu to be like you know have a expertise in scouting maybe he started off doing that before he got his bridge trip job as being one of the like ensigns that does this stuff you know and having scotty along i mean sure chief engineer there aren't a whole lot of missions where you're looking at worlds or whatever where he's not useful you know he's very good at recognizing metals and minerals all that shit because he is trained to be able to land on any alien world and slap together something to make his starship work out of whatever he finds so you know that's not too bad that's just the two of them but we'll get into later on there's a lot more people than should have been sent down but they're on the planet 
Kirk is abnormally, like, stressed about this. He's getting real antsy about the fact that they're over their check-in time and haven't checked in. Now, I get it. It is a bit of a stressful situation, but this seemed almost over the top. Like, Kirk was super stressed and even logical Spock's next to him. Like, well, you know, there could be nothing to report, sir. Could be just, you know, he's like, this world has no readings of life on it whatsoever. It has a brief, an at- a breathable atmosphere, and they've gone down, and they're not that far off their check-in time. So, like, Spock's perfectly fine about it. Like, you know, it's not time to stress yet. But you got Kirk real stressed out, which I kind of like, because, again, I feel like that's his whole character, is that's his thing. He cares about his crew. So many of his crew are, like, hurt or die, and, like, he emotionally reacts to it. It's not just, it's, they're my responsibility. It's a, he's actually angry you've just hurt his crew. It's a big part of his character is being this, like, this is my family, this is my crew, I am responsible for all of them, and I care about all of them. Because that's constantly, we see Kirk dealing with his crew dying and all this shit happening, and, like, I kind of like this scene because this isn't necessarily a death straight away, but this is a bit of a window to, like, this is probably what he's meant to be as a character. This is who he is. He is the one that stresses after every away mission. He's almost like the mother hen that's just annoying them constantly. But they all kind of like him for it because, you know, it's nice to know that if you're ever a couple minutes late because of something going wrong on a mission, that there's a very good chance your captain is stressed out around that the other end, fully aware of what's happening, reacting straight away. That'd be very comforting. Like, you know, someone's coming for you if things go wrong. And like, I like that because that's this whole scene was a really good way to show that with Kirk. Now, oh, sorry. So... What I should have said was Scotty and Sula are on the planet with a man named Jackson. We, we never really get a rank for or whatever. I don't know if he's meant to be an ensign or an engineer or what he's doing. Security, maybe. But, you know, Jackson goes with them. And at one point, not long after this, like, intro scene, we get the man Jackson calling up to the ship and telling Kirk one to beam up in a sort of calm voice. And this is after Kirk's been stressed out for a bit and they've been talking about the fact that they're late. And Kirk's immediately like, one... What happened to the other two? Where are Sulu and Scotty? And he just repeats very calmly from Jackson. One to beam up, Captain. And then after a little bit, Uhura's like, I, I can't make contact with them anymore. I can't. I don't know what's going on. So they go in. They beam him up. Obviously, you know, Kirk's freaked out. He's called up Dr. McCoy to be like, come to the transporter room. McCoy kind of comes around the corner like, what's going on? And Kirk just says, trouble. And they run into the transporter room. Jackson falls. Well, he doesn't fall straight away. He appears, sort of looks at Kirk, and then he seems to just die. He just falls. They're not sure if he's unconscious. Like, Kirk comes running. McCoy comes looking. They're like, he's dead. And we find out not long after, like, McCoy says, he's dead. And not only that, there is no physical reason he should be dead. There's no intrusions on the skin, no bruises. There's nothing. I can't find a single reason why this man should be dead. So, now we've got an interesting, oh no... We've got two people down on the planet, Scotty and Sulu, who who knows what they have found. This guy, Jackson, came up by himself and just died. But the, the funny thing is that after he dies, there's this really odd, his mouth opens and it's almost like a speaker in his stomach suddenly blares out, like he becomes a toy, like the voice sounds so weird, of a man's voice saying, your ship is cursed, you need to stay away from here. Now, of course, Kirk doesn't heed that voice at all they're they're not people that believe in curses and all that sort of stuff and two of his crew are in danger so 
McCoy determines what's happened with the body afterwards, and they immediately get a strike uh, a strike party. They probably should have sent a strike party or a security team at the least at this point, but no. This is what I was saying earlier where I got annoyed. Who goes down but McCoy, Spock, and Kirk. So now, think about this for a moment and how stupid this is. What if this was like Klingons and they had been using some kind of technology to cover the fact that they're there so that the ship scanners would say no one's on the planet? Well, you've just handed to these Federation enemies the chief engineer, the pilot of the ship, the head of the science division, the captain of the ship, as well as the main medical doctor. So now back on the ship, we've got a guy who we've never seen before called Assistant Chief Engineer DeSau. Now, that was interesting in itself because I'm like, I've never actually heard anyone referred to as Assistant Chief Engineer. I mean, it makes sense that they would probably have one because they do work in an environment where there could be an accident, there could be an explosion, you might die. The engineers, of course, have their own hierarchy of who takes over in that point. We've just, I don't think we've ever had Assistant Chief Engineer like explicitly like as a rank or a title before, which I thought was interesting. But DeSau's in charge. And, like, how messed up is that? Like I said, imagine this is the Klingons. They've used some kind of tech to hide themselves, or probably the Romulans, actually. That would be more their style to do something like this. Cloaking technology so that from the ship scanners, no one's on the planet. You bring down, you know, some of your command staff, the Romulans take them captive. Do their experiments, do whatever they want, and then straight after you've got who but the captain, the chief science officer, who is also kind of the first mate, so he... Well, first mate, first officer, I should say. They're not a pirate ship. <laughs> um, and the he- chief medical officer. So, at this point, you have the assistant of a senior officer in charge of the ship. Because all your goddamn senior officers are on the fucking planet. Like, how fucking stupid is this? This is the easiest way to lose all the secrets to your ship, all the security systems. And on top of that, not only are they all on the planet, they're on the planet alone. The only person who's been to this planet from the ship that wasn't a command staff was Jackson. We don't even know his role, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't security. Why the hell are they all down there without security? Now, like, one of them, I get. This is the sort of situation where I might even accept that the captain went, but if he went, Spock should have stayed on the ship. And they definitely should not have brought Dr. McCoy with them. They should have brought the medical officer, but not the chief of medicine. But this is a usual Star Trek thing. They always act as if the whole ship has one doctor. Which, I, you know, might make sense on a smaller ship, but with 400 people in a space like this where, again, you can have accidents, aliens, engineering problems take you out, you're going to want at least one off doctor. And we know from watching Star Trek that there are multiple doctors. In fact, he talks about having a whole staff we know there's Nurse Chapel. There's an Indian guy. I can't remember his name, but I'm pretty sure we've actually talked about him. He was in a past episode. He is a doctor. And I'm pretty sure he, they, in the past, like, reference another doctor who was supposedly on board. So, like, we know there are other doctors around. There are nurses. And I wouldn't put it past Starfleet to have a majority of their crew have first day training just as a standard anyway. So, like, surely there was... A few ways you could go about not having your entire fucking command staff on the planet at once, especially when there's an unknown entity and your people are missing. Like, they're missing. We don't know if they're being kidnapped. We don't know what's happened to them. And the one that came back is dead. Your scanners are still picking up nothing. So at this point, logically, you know something is going on down there. 
Some kind of intelligence spoke through the dead guy that came up here, which tells me that someone or something is down here, and two of my crewmates are now missing. Why would you not bring your security staff? Like, it, I know, it's Star Trek, I shouldn't get annoyed about that stuff, but god damn it, it frustrates me. I'm like, everything about that situation is just bad leadership. And I'm, I'm not going to get old making this complaint anytime soon, because it's, like I said, going to keep happening. Although I will say in the later tracks, it's a little more sensical. Like, in Voyager, it's different because Voyager is trapped in another quadrant, so there's no replacement officers or anything to come in. So the officers are risking their lives as an example of, like, I don't want to tell people to risk their lives on this. It's not, you know, they are in a completely different situation where they're willing to make sacrifices for their people because their people deserve a little safety. They can't be replaced. They're also more of a bigger asset. So they're different. Next Generation's pretty good at always making sure there's at least an officer or two on board. Like, by the Next Generation era, we've also got the second officer as a standard rank. So obviously, you know, the captain dies or leaves the ship, the first officer runs it. But later on, we also get the establishment of a second officer, who is, of course, the replacement for... Well, if the captain leaves the ship, he acts as the first officer for the first officer, who is now acting the part of the captain. And if anything happens to him in a real emergency situation, the second officer can then become captain. Now, we'll see it in Next Generation with Data, who is the second officer. Now, as we see throughout the show, it's very rare that the second officer has to take charge, but it's not all that unusual at diplomatic events and things like that, where the first officer and captain will go off ship and leave him in charge. Like, having that position is useful. This point of track, no idea who the second officer is supposed to be. Technically, they don't actually have a first officer because that role was filled by the actress for Nurse Chapel and they wouldn't, or the studio didn't allow a woman to be in charge like that, so they took her out of it. But instead of replacing her with someone else, because I think the original hope was that they could sort of write her character back in if they got successful, but it just never really happened for whatever reason. But, like, they left it open and that meant there wasn't technically a first officer. Quite often we see Spock play the role of the first officer, so everyone speculates that it's him. And as for a second officer, we really don't have one. On the original ship, I'd probably say Scotty is probably the one that we see being left in charge of the ship quite often when the other two are off, so he's probably de facto the second officer. But even, it's never really stated. The whole hierarchy of who takes charge when Kirk and Spock aren't there is weird. But anyway, I've, I have totally ranted about that for way longer than I wanted with the ranks. But, um, so anyway, we got, we meet the assistant chief engineer, all that stuff. So they go down to the planet and then they're looking around in the mist and these three witches appear. Well, ghostly, all I can describe is like ghostly witches speaking in a very, what someone entertaining children would use as a witch voice to tell them to leave and to not return. Which, of course, Spock, with his tech right next to him, tells him through the tricorder that, like, what you just saw is not real. So, like, what they just saw is an illusion. They then, sort of, they wake up because the mist overcomes them, and then they wake up and they're in a dungeon, like a proper castle dungeon, chained to a wall, and there's a skeleton chained to the wall next to them. They sort of, at first, they make a bit of jokes, like, so where do you think we are now? If that thing outside was an illusion, do you think this is an illusion? And who do they think they're fooling? Because they're like looking around, they're like, why am I in a stone castle? 
why is there witches in the fog? Like, this is, at this point, the 23rd century. Even in the modern day, in the 21st century, that stuff is so long ago in the past that it would be laughable if aliens tried to use that to scare us now. Like, what are you doing? By the 23rd century, it's even further. Like, this is ancient history of myths now. What are you doing? So they're not really scared. They're just confused, but they're also concerned because they're like, you know, I'm not... They're not scared of the witch side of stuff and the magic, but they're like, what the hell's going on? Now, they're rescued by Sulu and Scotty, who are, as they at the first presume, drugged, although I would say more accurately probably bewitched would be the right word. Scotty and that sort of come in, they very weirdly don't speak, they just sort of shake their head and then they let them out with the keys, lead them to a room where we meet a wizard. A wizard named... Corbus, I think his name was. It was something like that. Corbus. He's a big, sort of bald guy. He's got a little bit of like a ring of hair around, but it's he's mostly bald. And he's holding what looks like the cheapest cosmetic, like if you said wizard staff or like fairy princess wand or something like it looks like the cheapest like plastic bauble on the end that's obviously meant to be a diamond but you can almost see through it because it's like that cheap plastic stuff it was this whole episode was hilarious to me they were very obviously just using studio props and whatever the hell they could find except there was one prop that stood out to me that i really liked and that was there's a prop of the ship it's actually the enterprise but it looks like a metal like carving of the enterprise and it looks really really cool like, I really enjoyed it. But, um, yeah, so there's that. I thought that was cool. But then they they meet this wizard, and he has a black cat. Sorry, I just remembered how they got into the jail cell. I don't know why I forgot before. It's just, it's, I'm looking at my notes. It's just hit me again. So they were, they found the castle. They were confused about the castle. They followed a black cat, which led them over a trap door that they fell in and got knocked unconscious, which is when they woke up in the prison. That's what happened. I know it's not really relevant, but, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I said that. So th- that's how they ended up in the dungeon. They got rescued. They went and met Corbos. Corbos has got his weird wand. His weird wand, and he's fucking around with it. And he's, you know, showing them... Well, at first, he's trying to make them scared and saying he can give them whatever they want or he can take anything he wants away. And he waves it at the table and all this food appears. They do have a little comic relief moment where they're like, I welcome you to eat. And McCoy actually, like, takes a step forward, like, he's eager, because he's, like, looking at the food, and then he sees Spock and Kirk not move, and he takes a step back and, like, tightens his face, like, oh, yes, of course, you'll you'll find that we won't cooperate. (laughs) But I don't know why it's such a cheap, like, joke throwaway bit, but I actually really enjoyed it. McCoy, that, I don't remember his name, Dennis Forrest or something? I know he, Forrest D. Kelly, I think it is, I can't remember the actor's name, but he was a really good actor, I've seen him in a lot of older stuff, he is... A legitimately funny actor, and in a lot of the interviews, he's a very funny man too. Super sarcastic. You could tell he had a lot of say in the like lines that he got to read. But um, so this wizard tries to scare them. They very quickly tell the wizard, like, "Yeah, no, we don't care," because he's trying to like bribe them with gems, and they're like, "We can make as many of these gems back on the ship as we want. What do we want these for? These are worthless." And he sort of, at one point, like Corbo sort of stands back, and at one point he even says, "You know." I find you almost admirable. You're not bribable. You only care about your crew. You're not showing any selfish intent. You're very admirable, even amongst your own people. Which, again, we don't really know where they're getting their information about humanity, but, like, Spock and that start to, at this point, question, like, they're obviously some kind of entity or alien. 
and their understanding of humanity seems to have been derived from a book or stories. They don't seem to even baseline emotions. Like, they don't seem to really understand humans or their history. It's almost like someone who's never met a human before has vaguely had a quick look at some of their myths and tried to put something together. So they sort of, they're in agreement. They're like, okay, this is some kind of entity or alien of some kind, but it's truly alien. The way it thinks and the way it acts is so far removed from what we're used to that we don't know how to deal with it yet. Now, throughout this episode, we get the idea that Corbos kind of, like I mentioned before, admires the captain and the crew. He seems to be almost sympathetic to them, like he wants to help them. But the cat keeps meowing at him and he keeps responding as if she's talking. At one point, the cat leaves the room and comes back as a woman named Sylvia. Because it's a cute little black cat and it comes back and then there's a woman wearing some gown that's like very black. You know, it's very clearly they're trying to indicate that this is the black cat in a female form now. Because these forms, of course, these human forms are not their real forms. That's just the forms that they're taking to communicate. We don't know what they are yet. Like I mentioned, they're these tiny little, like, bug entity things. But, um, yeah, so she comes back and she it sort of talks about how she's enjoying sensations and feeling and having this form. She tells them to leave, except Dr. McCoy, who we see later on has been bewitched. And we, but we sort of see throughout this scene before they're forced to leave, there's a bit of an argument between Corbos and Sylvia. So we're starting to see this dynamic of like, yeah, Corbos actually likes the humans. He doesn't want to be cruel. It's Sylvia that does. She's the cruel one. Which, of course, Spock and McCoy, being the intelligent beings that they are, take full note of this and choose to exploit it immediately. So... Not long after they get back to their jail cell, they're talking and they're looking for a way out. And then Dr. McCoy shows up with his eyes the same way that Sulu and Scott were. He's obviously bewitched now. And he leads the captain to Sylvia. And he turns up the charm. He goes full ladies' man Kirk on this woman because he's determined, she, well, just from her words basically, that she's enjoying sensations and emotions and drives, ambition, all these things that she claims her species doesn't have and didn't have until they started to understand and sort of empathize with the humans, starting to like, not empathize, but like feeling their emotions. They're almost reflecting them. And she calls it sympathetic magic is the best description she gives. So I guess her powers work on like what her understanding of humans are is a weird mix of like genetics and feelings that she's picking up from us combined with a little bit of memory trying to put pieces together to form an idea of what they are but apparently by doing so she's also getting these emotions and feelings so apparently her race has never had any of these things and she's feeling it and she sort of mentions to Corvos like I'm enjoying this torturing them is a new sensation playing with their emotions is a new sensation I'm loving all these sensations and it's Again, it's an interesting alien idea of, like, a perspective of a brain who's never had, you know, sensations. Like, think about every human has sensations in different ways. Some people, like, sometimes as an autistic guy, my senses tend to go over the top. That's why autistic people go into, like, what they call the meltdown, the overstimulated feeling. Because, you know, sometimes, like, I don't like things touching the palm of my hand. I'll tend to hold most things with my fingers away from my palm because I find the palm very sensitive. Now, that's both good and bad. Like, when you're a kid, it can lead to meltdowns and overstimulation, and even for adults, you know, differing levels of people have different standards of what they can handle. But even regular non-autistic people still have sensations. 
and they still are capable of being overstimulated. Think about tickling. That's basically what tickling is. It's your body is freaking out. You're getting so much of a sensation that for a lot of people, oh, sorry, my chair nearly broke there, <laughs> that for a lot of people, tickling can be almost painful. It's a sensation that overwhelms your body so much that you're, because it seems stupid. You tickle someone, you're like, really? You're just wiggling a few fingers like under their arm or something like a human has the strength to grab your arm and throw you across the room, but because they're being tickled, they're almost incapable of moving or reacting to it. And, you know, that's kind of... It's interesting because as humans, we inherently know this. We have these different sensations. And like I said, different amounts. You know, autistic people get overstimulated a lot, but regular people still can be. They just tend to have more control over that and are able to maintain themselves. And then, of course, there's the other side where there are some people who have, you know, you've probably all seen a documentary or a video about this person that feels no pain, because there are actually medical conditions where either your nervous system is damaged and no longer feels the same sensations, things like diabetes can cause you to, you know, have, I don't know if it's like lack of nerve feelings or whatever, but like you have lack of sensations. Like, I once worked with a man who had diabetes, he stood on a nail when he first came to work without realising because he couldn't feel it, it was in the bottom of his shoe. He didn't realise until the end of his shift that he had been walking around all day, and he only realised because when he took his shoe off, there was blood, and it was all sticky inside of his shoe from where it had stabbed him in the foot. And he just walked around, bleeding a little all day, no notice of it, no feeling at all. So you, know, so you have this wide spectrum of like, just picking up a cold drink and putting it against the palm of my hand is almost overstimulating. And then you have some people like that with different things where just like they can walk on a nail and not feel anything really. It's not that they're robots or anything, they just don't have that much sensitivity to it. And then you've got these aliens who have never felt anything before and they're suddenly feeling all of it. And I love that concept of trying... Like, how do you write for an alien like that for the first time? Because, you know, some people chase... Our sensations are everything to humans. Some people will become adrenaline junkies, they call them, where they'll, like, dive on the... They'll ride the top of trains. They jump from planes with parachutes. They do extreme things to get that feeling because that adrenaline rush makes them feel alive, as they say, which is very similar to, like, a lot of drugs make people feel that way. Alcohol makes people feel that way. Our entire civilization and the way we act is based on our sensations and the way the world makes us feel and act. So if you didn't have them and were suddenly given them, like, you could go anywhere. You could find it all overwhelming and shut down. You know, like, I think Corvus kind of does. He gets filled with, like, compassion for the other humans and kind of likes them, but also just kind of is trying to shut it out and be more of himself again because he's finding it a bit overwhelming. Whereas Sylvia, opposite side, she's loving it. She's deep in all of it. She wants to use every sensation she can get. And Kirk realizes this and chooses to use this to his advantage turning the charm up to a hundred and trying to charm her. He starts touching her shoulder and before you know it, he's kissing her and he's trying to get information out of her while he's doing this because all the sensations are overwhelming her and she's just kind of saying what she probably shouldn't be saying, telling him things about how they got here, the fact that they're aliens, how they got here with the use of a transmuter. Not that he knows what that is, but like that tells him they're intelligent and they have some form of technology, at least to some degree. You know, so for once, charming man Kirk is actually very useful to the plot, and not just like a comedic thing or played off as like a character trait. Like it's actually a useful skill that he can turn on and off as a captain, which I thought was cool. 
you know, it's nice to see Kirk actually using one of his abilities. Now, at this point, they bring Spock back and, you know, there's a whole chase scene where Corbo sort of comes into the prison not long after because, you know, Kirk and that come in, they yell at her for a bit and she just says, yes, I'm enjoying torturing people. It's when she goes into that rant and she says, you will wait in the dungeon and I will see you later because she gets really annoyed that Kirk was using her. She realizes it after a bit and that's when the whole explosive argument starts. So they're back in their prison cell, Kirk and Spock trying to get out and then Corbo shows up. He sort of holds his hand up and says, don't worry, I'm here to help. He tells them to leave, says, your crewmates are lost, there's nothing I can do for them. And and this whole thing leads to a chase where she turns back into cat form, Sylvia, and starts chasing them down. Except it's not cat form like before, like a little house cat like she was. This time they sort of use camera angles and shadows and weird like 3D effects to try and make it look like the cat is huge. But they do it in a way where you can tell they've just got video of a cat getting very angry at a camera. They've turned all the sound effects up to 100 so that it sounds unnatural. And then they've tried to, like, cut that video inside of another video. It's actually fascinating seeing how they did that in the 60s and kind of impressive that they were able to, like, basically put a video within a video. Like, these days, it's not that big a deal. There's a bunch of editing softwares and tools to help you do that. But in the 60s, they were doing this all with, remember projector reels like they didn't really have much in the way of computer stuff that they were doing a large part of this manual so the fact that they made that work is incredible that's some amazing editing skills that i would have loved to have known how they done that but like you know from the modern sense just watching it outside of how cool the editing was it looked really bad I gotta be honest, it looked terrible. It looked like a bad YouTube video. It looks like something that you would see someone on YouTube making a parody of a Bollywood video level of quality. <laughs> if you know what I mean. But, you know, I get it. What they were trying to do was cool. They were trying to show, you know, they're not human. They're not cats either. They can take any form they want. They're powerful. She can become a great hunting beast, which is just a domestic cat that's the size of an elephant. Which, you know, if you've ever owned a cat, you know how much they could scratch you up if they were the size of an elephant. Yeah, I'd be running too. But, you know, throughout this scene, Corvo sort of says he doesn't want to harm them. He doesn't understand. He says that she's gone over the edge, that his people are not like this, and that this is just her reacting badly to all the sensations, and he pleads for their forgiveness and says, you know, you need to get out of here. He helps them escape, but they get to a point where the cat chases them, catches up with them, And then they do this weird, like, that cat jumping backwards and using its giant paw to, like, knock the door on top of this man. Kirk tries to, like, get the door off him. He just says, no, go. This is my people. It's my responsibility. And he hands him his wand, the big plastic diamond-looking thing I talked about earlier, and says, take this. And he doesn't really get to say why it's important before he passes out, it seems like. So Kirk runs off, they take it with him, and and a little while later, like, there's actually a punch-on between Kirk and Sulu, Scotty, and who else did... Oh, and McCoy, where they're all, like, fighting. He manages to knock them all out as Spock comes back around the corner, because he was checking out ahead. Comes back, sees them all unconscious, and Kirk goes, I found the crew. He goes, evidently. (laughs) It's just, just... Again, Spock shouldn't be as funny as he is, and he really doesn't try and be funny at all he sees. But for some reason, his deadpan way that he just tells him everything, he's so sarcastic that I just love it. He makes me laugh constantly. And, you know, they meet the cat, and she turns back into a human form, and she realizes that Kirk has the wand. 
tries to convince him to give her the wand, and after a little while of back and forth of them, Kirk realizes she's mad, she's not going to stop. He gets the wand, he looks at the table, and he just says, I think this is the source of your power, and he just slams it, just shatters it against the table, and suddenly he's standing back outside amongst the rocks in the fog with his phaser, and the rest of the crew all just sort of run up behind him, and they're like, was it all an illusion, sir? What's happening? And then they look down and you see the tiny little, they look like a mixture of like insects with a bit of fungus. And I think that's what they're supposed to be. Kind of mixed into one tiny creep. And I'm talking tiny, like pre-mantis level size. Like real small little creatures. And you're like, oh, okay. And then they, because that first box sort of like, oh, if only we could get them so that we could study them. And then they kind of slow motion collapse. Which I think is meant to indicate like, yeah, they're dying. Obviously, the source of their power is dead. They probably can't breathe the atmosphere. We know they're not from either this universe or dimension, so they can't live here without their power. They die. Then they go back to the ship. So, it's a wacky episode. I went on a bunch of tangents while I was explaining that, so I kind of apologize. I hope you could follow along with what I said. That was... I went all over the place, but I had a lot to say. But I just... I was... I don't want to get into it again, but I was really annoyed by all of the command crew going down. But anyway, thank you for listening. Goodbye for now, and I'll see you all in the next one, which is an episode called I Mud. So here comes Mr. Mud again. <laughs>